Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everybody, this is Lou Nash. And this is Ella Gordon-Latty. And together we welcome you to the redesign of everything. Where we will be talking to the global changemakers, the designers and the practitioners who are helping to redesign a better future for us all. We'll be giving you not only the inspiration, but also the tools to redesign your world for the better. Design is the single most important force in building a thriving future for us all. A future that's more regenerative, more resilient and more circular by design. So let's share these stories and insights gleaned from our guests at the front line of this transformation. Thank you for being here and for listening, because together we really can redesign everything. Joining us today is Leanne Kemp from Everledger, talking about the redesign of everything. Now, we have known Leanne for some time now, as she has been the driving force of the circular economy in Australia, where she was Queensland's chief entrepreneur. She is also the founder of Everledger, a digital transparency company who works with brands such as Alexander McQueen, organisations such as the Global Battery Alliance and the diamond industry, to name just a few. We were also lucky enough to have Leanne Kemp at X-Labs, a circular economy lab that we delivered last year for over 100 business leaders, where she stated, we won't be talking about a circular economy in 2030 because it'll just be the way we trade. For the benefit of our listeners, Leanne will be sharing more about the Everledger platform itself, but we wanted to highlight that this is an example of what we like to call embedded intelligence. In episode two of our podcast, we shared this as design method six, and this is really focused around how technologies such as blockchain, AI, and the Internet of Things can authenticate data flows across stakeholders in the system, bringing trust and transparency to how we do business. So how important is this? Well, it's massively important for business in our planet right now. By using embedded intelligence, we can address the risks and mistrust around performance, ethical sourcing, carbon emissions, ingredient quality, and equitable wages to our suppliers and customers. And EU research shows that sustainable supply chains investments can add 12 to 23% to value chain revenue. And it also opens up new business models for consumption to shift from ownership to access. So this is where consumers only pay when they use an item, even if it sits in their own home. This is vital as we reuse, rent, repair and maintain what we have so that we limit our use of virgin resources. An example of this is Bundles as a Service washing machine, which uses Internet of Things to measure and charge customers per wash. And all of this is of huge value as we address climate change. In fact, PwC suggests that AI alone in just four sectors, agriculture, water, energy and transport of the economy, could reduce global emissions by 2.4 gigatons of CO2 in 2030. And this is equivalent to the emissions of Australia, Canada and Japan combined. And it's why we see a huge opportunity for businesses to understand how embedded intelligence can be used to bring trust, and transparency to your supply chains and reduce your impact on the environment. So back to our amazing guests, Leanne Kemp and Everledger. Given the importance of this around the world, it's no surprise Leanne has held various roles such as co-chairing the World Economic 
Forum's Global Future Council on the Future of Manufacturing and takes part in the Global Future Council on Blockchain. Welcome to the Redesign of Everything podcast, Leanne. Thank you for having me. Ella, I'm just really impressed you got through all of that. <laughs> there were lots, you know, the World Economic Forum Global Futures Council. I don't know how you can even put that together, Leanne. Like, it's impressive. Just well, it's, the roll off the tongue. It's famed like blockchain <laughs> bingo. So let's start, you know, from A to Z. There's lots of uh, letters in the alphabet. Yes, there is. Yeah, no, um, we're just so thrilled to have you. Um, you know, it's really such an honour. You're such an incredible um leader in this market. Um, I really want to, at the start of each of our interview, we like to ask our guests, what actually does the redesign of everything mean to you? Well, it means Everledger to me. I mean, I think Everledger started in the heart of London in 2015. And I guess I posed a very deep and meaningful question to myself on the eve of turning 50. If I was to spend the next 10 years rethinking the last 10 years of my life, how would I spend it? And where would I purpose all of my energy, all of my connections and really drive change in a way that I could see um, leaving a legacy to next generation? Uh, and I guess that's really the start of where Everledger began. And when we think about the redesign of everything, it even not only plays out in the context of commerce, um, corporations have been built and they've done great for the world to a certain extent, but they've also performed a lot of evil. And that's because the economic construct of businesses have really looked at returning value to shareholders, those that have contributed to the asset base or the capital base of a company. Um, and being a part of the World Economic Forum now for the better part of the last five years and attending Davos, um, we last year, just on the eve of when COVID began to blow up or change the world or reset the world, the great reset, we were able to say there's something more than just looking at shareholder value. How do we think about stakeholder value and who are the stakeholders of my business? It's not just necessarily employees or shareholders, but it's people and planet. Um, and it's not good enough just to know about who my suppliers are. It's my suppliers and my suppliers' suppliers. And so... Let's blow it up. If we had the chance to redesign things from the start, we would definitely do it differently. And now is the time to be able to invest the best of not only our capital, but our intellectual capital. You know, countries like Australia, and I was born here in New Zealand, but I spent the better part of my adolescence um, in Australia. They have incredible natural beauties, Great Barrier Reef, and so too does New Zealand. And we also have incredible natural resources. But we have natural talent and we've not yet tapped into that. So I think right now the redesign of everything is about thinking about how we can tap into natural talent. And if we were to look at day zero, as Amazon does every day, what decisions would we make differently if we were afforded that opportunity? And let's face it, we're at day zero now as we come out of the vaccine uh, immunization across the world with COVID. So, but we still have a big virus and that is us on the planet. So how mm. do we attack that? Wow. I mean, can I just say, I'm so immensely proud that we can claim you as one of our own, having been, <laughs> having been born in New Zealand. I know you spent much of your adolescence in Australia, but I'd love for you to share with us about how some of your New Zealand roots or your upbringing that you did spend here influenced your thinking and approach to tackling some of these really complex problems we're talking about. 
Well, firstly, I fed the cow and didn't eat it, but my surname is Kemp. And so I was privileged in the last couple of weeks to actually afford myself some time, which we often don't necessarily do as an entrepreneur or or a founder of a company that's scaling up as rapidly as we are. And I managed to go right to the very tip of the north of New Zealand and stumbled across Kemp Place and, of course, right next to Stone Store. And that is where the heritage of my DNA began here and the journey. My mum was born in Fiji, so I have a very deep sense rooted origin around around island nations. And mm. for me, when I think about the dichotomy and even the tension that still exists in Indigenous communities, particularly in Queensland and Australia, I'm very proud of my New Zealand heritage. And I'm also very proud of the incredible international strides we've made as a nation. In fact, um, I held a government office uh, in Queensland. There's been many pressures about saying, should you choose a political pathway? But the reality is I refuse to give up my New Zealand passport because it sings so deeply to the alignment of values that I hold as a person. Mm. And I feel as though this is home, even though maybe I'll travel abroad and, you know, uh, embark upon new horizons. I always feel as though when I come home, I'm treading on uh, really comfortable soils. Mm. I'm just thinking, Leanne, like when you show up at Davos, how does that turn up for you? Well, being Leanne and who I am, I often have to apologise for myself before I walk in the room. And now it's one of those familiar faces that they just know that I'm going to confront the realities. Yeah, You know, one of our values in Everledger is to bring the future forward because, as I said so eloquently a number of years ago about the circular economy, we shouldn't be talking about it because it should just be the economy. Mm. And if we are to really bring the future forward, how are we going to invest in that? Not just only as a legacy give back into the next generation, but to really bring forward the consciousness of what we're all thinking, but we're too afraid to speak about. And so I think sometimes I put my feet in my mouth and words come out of my mouth before my mind says, well, you should have actually had the handbrake on that. But the reality is we have to have a consciousness around the things that we're doing and the reason why and the alignment of this value creation set that has to live on beyond just the monetary bottom line. And some of that is now playing out in very large international forums. But that's not the work to be done, to be honest. It's to be done at the grassroots. It's in conversations like this. It's connecting with the small and medium-sized enterprises. It's connecting with the startups and the founders, the ones that are the dreamers, the creators. That's really where this um, movement needs to start. And that's why connecting back here... um, Even in a short period of time, it's been like for the better part of 16, 18 months since the world blew up or reset itself. Uh, It's been great to be able to reconnect because we didn't let it stand in the way of progress. We just found a different way. So it's fantastic to be able to be like water or think like water. How do we actually maneuver around things rather than just hit up against an obstacle? So zeroing in on Everledger, just to give our listeners some idea of the scale, we read that there are over 2 million diamonds and over 500,000 coloured gemstones on the Everledger blockchain. Can you share with our listeners a bit more about how Everledger works and the impact that you have had with the diamond industry? In 1995, in track and trace technologies, and I'm a super nerd. In fact, I I feel more comfortable in front of a keyboard than where I am in sometimes sitting behind a microphone or in front of people. (laughs) So I worked in track and trace technologies, everything from seafood to kangaroos and even cows in Australia. 
And it wasn't until 2012 where we started to see the next generation of database technologies being born, which is blockchain. And I fundamentally believe we're now in the transformation of the internet. We're moving from what we once knew was the World Wide Web to the World Wide Ledger. And so I thought and I plagued myself, what was one of the most impactful moments in my life where I just led out in such disbelief that this was still a problem today? And it was remembering watching Leonardo DiCaprio, and I thought as a teenage girl, he was quite cute. And that was my first motivation for watching (laughs) Blood Diamonds, the movie. But I remember myself being completely speechless and thinking, how is this even possible? Um, Having my teenage years being spent in Australia, there was no such thing as child labour. And mining companies, you know, were well-established corporates. Uh, And yes, um, I could not believe that there was such an atrocity that still existed today. So when I thought in that crisis moment, after I actually took a backpack and walked through Nepal and did the Forrest Gump of my life of three months through the Annapurna Ranges, where would I spend the next 10 years of my life? And how could I purpose every single element of energy? And it was creating Everledger. So taking the very best of my knowledge, um, knowing that I was a self-taught engineer so I could cut code myself, um, and I was finally at a point in my life where my children were, you know, promoted out of school and were out in the wild world and, you know, doing lots of great things for themselves, I could actually afford the time to be able to purpose my energy. So I thought I would take the best of my knowledge, connect with the most incredible engineers that I knew and start to make a difference that not only solved a problem of the yesteryear, but also prevent what potentially could be the largest, most conflicted supply chain in the world by 2030. So we took blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, a whole bunch of gumption and a fair bit of time in a backpack and travelled around the world and connected with all of the mining companies, the diamond cutters, the certification laboratories and said, we're going to bring transparency to some of the most opaque supply chains in the world. So we began with diamonds and tracked diamonds from the source of the mine right the way through to the retail network. You walk into a Tiffany store today and ask the question about where does a diamond come from, they will tell you because they know where it comes from because the technology is transformed in such a way that we can purpose that truth. But transparency isn't for everyone. It's like standing out and opening up the kimono. No one ever wants to see all of the (laughs) truth that sits behind Uh, the emperor's clothes. And so over the course of the last six years now, we've said there's more to be done. And how do we think about transparency in diamonds and coloured gemstones, working with the fashion industry, and even in Australia with Australian wool? And how do we bring that out? Not only thinking about child labour, but also about the rights of animals. And how do we bring that and purpose that to the forefront? So we were very fortunate because diamonds are unique by their very nature. So we could actually capture a fingerprint of that diamond and create an exact digital twin. And we were able to track that from the source of the mine right the way through to the retail network. Consumers want to know, and they have that silent voice in their head every time they walk into a store, or at the time that embarrassing moment might come out when you say, will you marry me? I love you, but where did this come from? That is that secret voice that you know is often spoken about. And now we have the ability with technology to be able to purpose it in a way where that truth can be told. And that's now starting to change age-old companies in being able to say it's not good enough just to hang a 100-year-old brand on the front of a retail outlet. Prove it. Show me. 
And that, of course, is now opening up an entirely new opportunity. Incredible. I think what you're saying is true also when it comes to consumers, that sometimes transparency isn't for everyone. In the sense that, as a consumer, it can be quite confronting to see where your products are coming from. But it also appears that in that moment is the real shift to when you have an uncomfortable moment. You're like, oh my goodness, I'm consuming something with palm oil. Okay, I've got a choice now. And I feel like more and more people are coming around to that and making the switch, which is which is really cool to see from a consumer perspective as well. There's a real consciousness, you're right, mm. and it's confronting because ultimately we're still price-driven. It's a race to the bottom. Mm. And the externality of cost that it's costing us in terms of planet and people mm. have actually been hidden and hasn't necessarily been surfaced. And so when you're confronted with that, and sometimes it will cost you more to make that decision, but ultimately you as the consumer is the greatest voice of change. And so now it's about time people should all step forward into that moment. And on, on that note, because I know Eva addresses products from creation to consumer, I'm super keen to understand how this has been applied to kind of closing the loop too. So once a consumer, you know, knowing where their product has come from, how Everledger can be used to let the consumer know what to do next and close that loop. So we started with this big burning question around the diamond industry of um, where does it come from? And and to be honest with you, we are obsessed by it. Like mm. we want to know whether that be in diamonds and coloured gemstones, in fashion, in cotton, in wool, doesn't matter what industry. And I remember starting the company in 2015 and painted a vision for where we would go within a short period of time within the next decade. And I said to my investors, we will be tracking the most conflicted supply chain in the world by 2030. And I guess they were probably trying to think about what that might be. Is it cosmetics? Is it food? Is it what have you? But I said to them, we're going to track everything from diamonds to batteries. Mm. It's like, what do you mean batteries? How can you go from a company that's working with the luxury goods space into batteries? But if we think about the evolution of stored energy and what is happening in regenerative energy space, um, batteries is going to be one of the largest, most relied upon yet conflicted supply chains in the world because the natural resources of that supply chain are hyper-consolidated Cobalt, of course, is still a majority exported out of the Congo DRC. And yet we haven't necessarily transformed battery technologies in such a way. We're still reliant upon lithium and cobalt in the supply chain. And we have a finite resource of those natural resources. Mm. So we set about saying principally we need to answer the question of where does it come from and where does it go to after it leaves me? Mm. And that opened up a really interesting journey for us not only in the traceability of critical minerals for the battery supply chain, and some of those electric vehicles will have 10 years um, in the life cycle of electric vehicle batteries, but it also looked at other alternatives. So, for example, why are we sourcing some of our metals and minerals directly from the earth when we could repurpose them out of e-waste as a prime example? So you would have seen some of the projects we've embarked upon at Everledger in looking at partnering with e-waste and being able to extract those metals and minerals and repurpose them into the jewellery supply chain. So when you think about having conversations with some of the jewellery manufacturers and said, no, you don't have to worry about sourcing from a mining company. Why don't you go and source from Hewlett-Packard or from Apple? I'm, they looked at me like I have cross eyes, <laughs> thinking I'm totally nuts. So 
I can excuse that I'm totally nuts. Being born in New Zealand and having the education come out of Australia, of course, we think differently down under. But it's not the magnetic fields that exist under the equator. It's the fact that we have a consciousness of knowledge about what's possible. Mm. So having that entrepreneurial spirit, we went out and proved that it is possible. So there are great implementation and use cases now with Dell that have deconstructed parts of their e-waste and then purposed that back into the jewellery supply chain. There are companies that we've worked with and entrepreneurs in their first vision to be able to take waste out of furniture companies and then repurpose that in entirely new different ways, turning a jacket into a shacket as a prime example. So to bring that whole maker space back to reality is the reality of where we're sitting now. So Leanne, you're six years in, you've raised $30 million in your Series A round. People like Bloomberg, Tencent, Fidelity have invested in your business. You write for Forbes, operating in over six countries, and you have over 100 staff. Out of all of that, all of your experiences, what has been the most impactful moment as an entrepreneur? You know, one of the most transformational times for me in the journey of Everledger in its short five-year existence is that I pledged to build a forever company. I know that what I'm doing now will outpass my time in my seat as CEO and founder. And I do remember being really passionate about supporting not just only the diamond industry, but also coloured gemstones. And the mechanics of the industries are two very different industries. The diamond industry has 10 major mining companies, large scale producers in the world. And a lot of those diamonds have concentrated areas upon which they're mined, Australia and Russia. Um, and in, in, of course, Africa. And we have major centers of diamond cutting in places like Surat, which is a tiny regional town outside of Mumbai. The color gemstone industry is completely opposite. 80% of the world's color gemstones are mined in countries in the world where small artisanal producers exist, in countries like Tanzania, in Myanmar, even in, um, even in Australia. In fact, a tiny little town about three hours outside of Brisbane. And when we began our work, we were really empowered to be able to provide value and give a voice to the unheard. And I remember traveling into Tanzania. And it was at that point in time, I thought, we're going to purpose the very best of our team to make a difference. Tanzania have constructed an entire community around extraction of gemstones. The women are the miners and the men are the traders. So licenses of trade are issued to the men. And the women, as I began to walk on the soils of artisanal small-scale producers, are literally babies strapped to the front in the sweltering heat with wheelbarrows and shovels. And they would dig into the earth every day, filling wheelbarrows full of gemstones. And they were paid on the weight of the rocks. And the men, of course, had these environments upon which they could trade. So we thought there was something that necessarily wasn't aligned to value. And it wasn't necessarily just about us applying the technology, but it was also bringing entirely new business models and ways of trade to that community. And at the very essence of Everledger, it's not just only about where something comes from, but it's also about what we can give back. So we set upon a pretty ambitious journey, bringing together the best laboratories in the world, some of the largest brands in Europe, as well as some of the universities to be able to partner with us to go into community and speak to those small-scale producers, the women, to be able to educate them that it's not just about the weight of the rocks that they extract, but it's about the quality of the gemstone. 
They'd never been trained in gemology, nor had they been afforded the opportunity for education. So we set out on a journey to create a safe contractual space. So you're probably listening to me thinking, so safe contractual space, sure, bunch of emails, lawyers sending contracts backwards and forwards, but that's not what a safe contractual space is like in Tanzania. So we embarked upon a set of 50 mining women, created an environment which literally was held up in a room with, yes, there were boards on the outside of windows and armed guards at the front where we could educate them on how those gemstones and the different colours would afford them different value. Over the course of the last 18 months, have been able to bring not only an education series around gemology, but to connect them directly into international trade. And now, after the last two years, we've also been able to support community-based incentives where the profits that would normally be afforded back to individual miners has gone back to the community as a whole. Gemological labs are now being formed. Equipment is being shipped. And those mining women, yes, they're still mining with babies strapped to the front with shovels. But now when they dig the earth, they know that that glistening green is value rather than just being told it's based on the weight of the rocks. So for me, that was never about making money for Everledger. It was about enabling the alignment of value and value creation in a supply chain where that environment and that community had never been afforded a voice or even an opportunity for change. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Circularity, a team of passionate circular strategists working with a new breed of businesses. They don't see today's challenges as someone else's problem or the solutions as a utopian vision. Simply put, that is why we're here, to help build capability, unlock new value and co-design an extraordinary future together. If you are wanting to level up your impact and are looking for a partner to support that journey, consider our advisory services. Get in touch via our website circularity.co.nz I'm thinking about the big work that you did with Alexander McQueen that I know when I looked at it looked really complicated but super cool and this idea of kind of building a community around garments and, and where traceability and trust in their supply chains and the Everledger platform took them I'm interested to kind of hear you share that yeah, look, Alexander McQueen is a really prominent global brand and more importantly, it's a heritage brand that's important to the UK and it's a brand that was flatlined when you think about the atrocities of the founder and what happened in terms of his own uh, his own death and the brand actually, to a certain extent, need to rethink an entire proposition in market. We work in the blockchain space, um, which is a new generation of technology that helps to share data in a trustful way. It also brings the next generation of the internet together. So there's new companies that are being born now that are starting to think about what we call Web3 brands. So addressing a digital first proposition around millennials that really live inside of both a digital world and a physical world in parallel. And it's hard for me. I'm 50. So it's hard for me to understand um, exactly how you could be a digital first native. But when we sat down with the creative directors, we said, there's also something that's critically important about honouring the designers and the creative experts. And typically when you think about these very large uh, luxury brands, they have one prominent designer. We said, what if we could bring the entirety of community to the forefront of the design thinking process? What if we could dig into the subcultures geographically? So 
Karaoke is a big hit in Korea. Uh, graffiti art with Banksy is huge in the UK and Europe. Um, Australia and New Zealand is deeply committed to Indigenous and Maori and Iwi. So how could we link in to um, that subculture? How can we bring together designers from each of those geographical locations? And just like you'd have a cult following in a movie like Clockwork Orange, how do you bring icons to bear every month or every 12 months? So instead of thinking about fashion every season, four seasons a year, let's think about it in a rolling set of icons. Using the technology to enable us to be able to speak the story of the object. So let this jacket tell its story about where it's come from. Track everything from the source of its material and not necessarily thinking about where it's come from, but also waste materials. So the waste of wool, the waste of cashmere, how do you roll that up into a new product? And think about it in a circular environment so that we can think about this jacket has not only a first purpose in its life, but a second and third. And bringing all that together with a technology so the product speaks to itself and that given it's a higher priced product that's connected with the brand and the purpose and the person, how do we make this the passport into a special VIP event? Mm. So I'm branded. I walk in. I don't need to show my ID. I can just walk in with this jacket knowing that I'm already identified and I'm branded to walk into that VIP event. So we had now have 150,000 odd garments that have been produced over 50 countries in the world with a commitment on export manufacturing of a million that'll be completed by the end of this next 12 months. And the community is now starting to live on. This happened about 12, 18 months ago, this was before people started to get really hot on the tails of what we call NFTs, which is the new crypto trend. And so when crypto started to blow up again, we've seen this in so many cycles, we were like, wow, these guys are talking about selling baseball cards. We already have huge production lines of fashion goods, of craft gin, craft scotch that are already well established in this market. So sometimes I feel like the mantra and the values of Everledger of bringing the future forward is truly uh, walking the talk, which is a, a good sign for the team. Mm, I love the just the scalability. For many people, they're attempting to do this in small volume numbers and one market, and it, it doesn't ever grow beyond almost that startup and that kind of intent. And I, I think that's what I love about when you introduce these kind of technologies is the scale by which then it can be adopted and grow. Yeah, I guess that's a seasoned entrepreneur, right? I mean, uh, when... I've never had a real job. In fact, I don't think anyone would employ me by virtue of my attitude, sometimes the way I think and definitely the way I dress. But, you know, when you're a seasoned entrepreneur and you know and understand how you take an idea or think about it in a product sense and then you have to move it to a platform, there's entirely different ways upon which you can staircase that scaling. And there's definitely secrets. I mean, there's many great entrepreneurs that exist in the world. And once you tap into that understanding, um, if you can align the value of a supply chain or an industry with the value creation, then you know you've actually got that product market fit. Whereas typically you see entrepreneurs come up with a great idea and they often just have a customer product fit, mm. but you need to be able to transcend into a true product market fit. And they're two very different pivotal points. Mm. I remember when you you actually shared that with the XLADS teams on day one a year and a half ago, and uh, so I'm hearing it for the second time. And every time I hear it, it brings new meaning. What you were saying, Leanne, did shift, um, shift my thinking to asking you about your other roles. 
and your role of Queensland Chief Entrepreneur that you held in, in Australia till I've got December 2020. The first female entrepreneur to hold that position, which is really amazing. And we talked before this podcast a little bit about your role and how that shifted over COVID. And I'd really love you to share that with our listeners around, you know, the tasks that you had in terms of building a successful startup ecosystem and how that changed for you during the COVID period. Yeah, so many people talk about wearing multiple hats. And I was very conscious when I took on the role inside of the World Economic Forum and the policy advisor for the OECD, as well as being appointed, which is an honorary appoint by the Premier to take on the role of Chief Entrepreneur with the Minister of Innovation. I was really conscious about saying it's not multiple hats. It's actually, how am I going to wear shoes, belt and hat in these roles? And I was the first female to be appointed, but most importantly to me, and I'll just cast that aside, it's that I was the first entrepreneur to be appointed to the role whilst running and scaling a business. And the importance in that is that the currency of the moment is critically important. To be an entrepreneur in the 80s, in the first generation of the internet, it's a very different time to running a scale-up business today. Um, there wouldn't be such a thing as a Minister for Innovation in the 1980s. Um, we didn't necessarily face a crisis like we just faced in the last 12 months with COVID in the 1980s. There's very different crises that we meet. But I do think that appointing an advocacy for founders and entrepreneurs and innovators and creators and the crazy ones like us is critically important because there is something in the taxonomy, um, the working dialect between government, big business and innovation and entrepreneurs that is very different. And we need to be able to have a translational language to be able to outcome value and value creation. And I guess being um, as vested as I have been in entrepreneurship because the reality is no one will employ me. Um, not that I've ever tried to have a real job, but I just know that I have never had a resume. I don't even know where to start. Um, that I have the ability to do that translation of language and translation of value, which is critically important Whether when you think about policy, when you think about how do we form up the fairness between big business and small business? How are we going to be risk tolerant around um, innovation leaps that are critically important for us to be able to transform value? And that role was hugely frustrating, to be honest with you. I felt like I was in the driving seat, two hands on the steering wheel, no airbag, foot on the accelerator with the handbrake on, knowing that I needed to get to the place where I needed to with a car full of passengers that were really budding, wide-eyed entrepreneurs that were reliant upon me to help take them to the next sort of destination point, but I'm being anchored by so much around me. And to be honest with you, the one thing that really shone out in that role was a commitment to education and a commitment to understanding that the importance in the formation of relationships will outlive any value that the bottom line might create through policy or grants or procurement or what have you. And so my commitment was to really, truly give first in just the lived experience of what we were going through in the terms of COVID, and I'm a good crisis CEO, but it was also in the lived experience of the journey that I've had over the last 25 years of running my own business, scaling, exiting, succeeding, failing, the whole sort of gamut of it. And I feel like that is often misunderstood in the importance of leadership. 
We often speak out our truth in an education sense, but we often miss that the cognitive layer of the experience and bearing all in terms of the scars. And I think that was a really important part of the journey for me was there were times I didn't have the answers, but what I had the commitment to was to seek out and find those answers in some various ways. And to me, that was really the give. I had so much oxygen in my blood through the last two years, through that visceral experience of reliving contextual moments of my own life, feeling it when I was 19 with this great idea that I only had um, $500 asking dad to borrow a little bit of money to start my first business. You know, I felt it when I sat in front of a founder with 35 people in the company that had to close down everything and was losing their marriage in the same week. And so for me, reliving that experience gave the moment upon which I could give that gilded but very pragmatic advice, um, not necessarily stepping into their shoes, but also just living through the experience to say, actually, it's all going to be okay in the end. And don't necessarily associate yourself with the success or the failure of the venture because this venture, this experience is giving you something that you can't learn in a textbook in a university. Ain't that the truth? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're talking about the fact that we have all experienced this great reset. And given that you've stood in both the place of an entrepreneur running a business but also up holding a government position and at the policy level, considering circular strategies but also technology and also technology enabling circular strategies for our economy. What advice do you have for businesses and governments alike for bringing those on, utilising them to build a better future? When we talk about the Great Reset, I think the reality is we're still running at a two-speed event. We have massive handbrake moments where we've got economies being turned on and then in the flick of a switch it's being turned off. And I believe that the adoption of new technologies um, – given that we actually had a flick of a switch just like that when COVID came, there was a massive digital transformation effort. But there wasn't a huge economic transformation effort. So we're not going to see an immediate uptake of innovation. We're not going to see an immediate uptake of the circular economy because I think the enlightenment of that is still in a dimmer switch. What we are thirsty for is our social norms to return to what we used what it used to be, where we felt comfortable. Coming back into a life-business balance or a work-life balance in terms of working from home or working in an office. But the reality is that as we start to think about the economic positioning and our monetary systems are really being challenged right now, mm. particularly when we think about how much money has had to go back in in terms of stimulus and just keeping a livable wage alive in many countries in the world, we're starting to rethink what money means. We're starting to rethink um, even digital currency in the world of cryptocurrencies. So I do feel as though the world needs a different approach and a great reset, but we're expecting it to be a light switch moment because we've just experienced that, the shock of that, where it mm. says you have the freedom today, but on Friday you're completely locked down for the next three to five weeks, mm. the economy will turn back on in a dimmer switch moment. And it's those that can embrace that change and ready the right set of natural talent resources, not necessarily just technology resources, but the people that want to be able to take the crack, 
that they can see in the doorway as it opens and run straight through it are the ones that are going to start to be able to be the change makers. So I'd say we are dimmer switching in terms of the turn on around changes, but we have an opportunity to dash out in front. Mm. And so businesses that know that the previous business model, right, is not working because it's not recession-proof. And I guess we've weathered the storm in terms of an economic recession, but we've only weathered it now. It doesn't mean that it's not going to come back like a scorpion tail to sting us in the next two to five to ten years. But we need to be able to think about, again, that critical moment in time. If we had an existential crisis within our life, within our business, within the world, it's time to be able to execute on a great reset. Mm. So it's a two-speed ability to vision change and then to activate change. Mm. And the problem is it's not going to be a turn-on and a turn-off moment like we've had with going into quarantine. Complicated answer, but I do think the simplest way is government's not here to save anyone right now. So we're seeing dwindling innovation budgets. We're seeing really risk-adverse tolerance. And the reality is governments are focused on getting people back to work having safe health, and for the social norms to return. I'm not really seeing any governments massively supporting huge innovation uplifts. Mm. However, we've not woken to the moment when the light switch does turn on and the fact that we might have a vaccine for COVID, but we've not yet got a vaccine for the virus of the planet. And COP26 at the end of this year is the prime platform and opportunity for the reality of that moment to be heard and seen by the world because the United Nations General Assembly, the World Economic Forum, Davos have not been able to meet for the last 18 months. Mm. And once those meetings of the global minds occur again, the focus point as we are all vaccinated will start to move to we have a virus on this planet and we now need to solve that. Mm. Who would have thought a decade ago that we could create a vaccine for a pandemic in shorter than 18 months' time. It would never have occurred to any massive scientists that we could have pushed that through. So we have the technology, we have the science, we have the money, we can create the outcome. Now let's focus our energies on the vaccine of the planet. If you're looking to explore circular methods and unlock solutions alongside experts, communities and partners, join us at X-Labs. X-Labs is New Zealand's first dedicated circular economy lab. You bring the challenges, we'll solve them together. After a highly successful 2020 program delivered to 18 of New Zealand's top businesses, we're bringing it back for round two. Register your interest for the 2021 program today by heading to www.xlabs.co.nz. And for for businesses who are observing, you know, revenues, cut, job losses, that kind of thing, with the proposition of circular strategy, strategies and technologies, what do you think they have to gain? And how do you think businesses looking at this going, you know, I've suffered great losses, but I can see this kind of new world, new technologies to take advantage of. How do we get them to make that step? So financial constructs are changing. Mm. And... The boring accountants and the crazy lawyers have got a job to do. We shouldn't just be looking at balance sheets and profit and loss statements. We should be looking at profit, loss and impact statements. And once we are able to start thinking about measuring an impact or a social value 
we've proven that we don't necessarily need the increased profits to live well and live healthily. We need to be able to do good while doing well. Mm. And I think that's really the turning point. We've seen very early stage constructs. And in fact, New Zealand is leading the world when we start thinking about the climate financial disclosures. And UK fast followed New Zealand. So New Zealand is globally leading in this place. But how do we get that translation down Mm. to the mums and dads, the news agencies? And that is as simple as the accountants explaining there's more to be done than just a profit and loss. It's a profit, loss and impact statement. Mm. I um, I just want to put out a personal call for the boring accountants and the crazy lawyers to, to call me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It sounds like a really good combination, Leanne. I think, I think that's the best advice of the podcast, that combination. <laughs> Quite do, you, do, you, do you have personal experience with... Uh, with boring accountants and crazy lawyers. I have. I have. I employ them. Yes, that's so very true. But yeah. when they do call you, tell them to put down their time and materials billing and tell them to start billing on impact. Okay, nice. So, yeah, reframe it. Reframe, yes. reframe how they work. I like that. I'm thinking about, you know, for a lot of our listeners, they're like, goodness me, how are we going to get there? What does mm. the future look like? You know, I buy my oat milk. I buy my diamond. I just want to buy a diamond for my wife. What does the future have in store for us? You know, these are these are heartfelt moments. You know, these are rituals that we have in our life. What have we got to look for, forward to and, and consumption and the use look, of goods, you know? We, we have a lot to, to look forward to. But what I will say is that the most powerful change makers in any organization is likely not to be the CEO or the financial controller or the crazy lawyers. It's actually the procurement officer. It's the person who has the ability to sign that check, the person who has the power to buy stuff. And so it's at that moment that you can make that change in a very simple set of new set of questions. Where does it come from? Can you prove out parts of this supply chain? So it's an interesting set of corporate laddering that is likely to occur over time. When we think about chief sustainability officers, they used to sit in the marketing department as a nice little set of statements that you can put on a label, on a bottle somewhere. But now they're actually sitting way up in the boardroom table with really important responsibilities. And you're starting to see the renaming of these corporate titles from going chief of sustainability officer to chief responsibility officer. So I do think the change makers are those that have the ability to take a pen and make a purchasing decision. And it's the chief procurement officers that are the ones with the most power around change at the moment. Um, Alignment into budgets is always a concern and a consideration. But again, I would encourage everyone to start thinking about profit, loss and impact and how can we actually be the driver towards that. The world is changing. It's changing rapidly, not only because we're looking at the next generation and they're asking very serious questions of us, not only at the kitchen table, but also in in courts around the world right now, in some of the largest global constructs like the World Economic Forum and teenagers and youth are having a voice and they're working towards outcomes and they're making those that are in positions of power or influence accountable to seek answers and to show outcomes And so I do think that we're in a construct of change. There is definitely a disconnect between accountability and responsibility. We know that ultimately we have 
accountability and we're looking for responsibility towards our leaders. But each of us as individuals can start to make those changes. And it's more than just saying, I'm not going to eat steak or meat this week. There's other things that can be done around the consciousness. And it starts with understanding how you're going to educate yourself on what um, those changes are within the empowerment of the circle of you. And then, of course, it's the viral effect after that. Financial markets have a huge responsibility and accountability in this sector. And we're starting to see financial markets move. Big motherhood statements were made about 18 months ago by some of the largest capital market movers like BlackRock. Mm. One of our investors is Fidelity, deciding about where their capital injections will go. But as I said before, the real change makers are not the Black Rocks of the world. It's not even in the forum of Davos or the World Economic Forum. It's the procurement officers. It's those people that make that purchasing decision. Um, it's those that in the household that make the decision about buying kids uniforms and what happens after, you know, that second and third year of use comes into account. Can you remake that school blazer into a pencil case? It's those types of decisions that actually are the change makers in this economy. I'd love to hear your thoughts on a conversation I was having a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman whom I know who is very, I call him a futurist, but a very informed futurist about kind of trends that he's seeing and, and where he thinks things might go. We're having a conversation about tariffs and supply chains and thinking about in the future, would there ever be a chance where countries to get product imported into other countries would have to prove supply chain and pr- prove certain things about supply chain. And I thought that was a really interesting provocation around how the importance of supply chains and what happens through a supply chain and being able to show that proof might turn up in regulation down the line. It's not even a provocation. It happened five years ago. I mean, that's why Everledger exists. So the future is now to a certain extent. I mean, we work deeply with the Russian government. Of course, they're one of the largest producers of diamonds in the world. And they've had transparency policies in place for the better part of the last five years. And when we think about some of the tensions that exist between global supply chains today, whether it be the export of seafood from Australia into China, you know, China is looking at some of our seafood out of Australia and asking about cadmium levels. And we need to be able to enable a digital trade window to occur to show the proof of not just origin, but how those goods were manufactured and the condition upon which it impacted people and planet before those goods even leave the country. And so this is not a future event. This is happening right now. When we think about critical minerals, uh, which are used in electric vehicles or batteries or e-waste, I mean, sorry, electronic, um, uh, electronic items, you know, there is a footprint that needs to be established around the environmental impact of those critical minerals because we're competing now as Australia against the other countries in the world. And whilst we might be um, child labour free, uh, who's to say that we aren't necessarily causing even more environmental detriment than the likes of another country like the Congo DRC? So it's the lesser of two evils. So traceability is being built deliberately now into government policy And when we think about and the negotiation tables that have happened with international trade, New Zealand was front and centre on negotiating their free trade agreements with the UK and so too was Australia. You know, a lot of these constructs around international trade were actually discussed at the table with the free trade agreement. So 
the quality of produce, the economic value that goes back into community, the Indigenous rooting of how that value can go back into not only people and planet. So that is now a construct that's written in policy. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that, that started five years ago. I think it's also really important, Leanne, for the commerciality of the recovery of the materials. You know, I know for a lot of businesses that are looking at buying recovered materials, you know, you talked about the exchange between the battery company and HP, right? It's to have that authentication around Mm. where those recovered materials came from, what they were sourced out of, how they're then used, and to follow them as they move through another life right? Another cycle in the economy. Mm. And I think that's the piece that you can start to extract value as a business. And essentially, those are the circular business models, right? That add up to this beautiful number of $4.5 trillion of of resources to be reused and remade and remanufactured. Yeah. The acceleration event for me with the circular economy happened when I was in Davos in 2017. And I remember being in a room talking about everything from blockchain to traceability and diamonds and what have you. And I was in a room with a, a series of ministers w- from China. And I remember it was a recent announcement about China threatening to close their borders for waste. And it was at that point in time, I was thinking, well, does that really affect Australia? And we'll see where that goes. But it was in that next 24 hours that I managed to meet the federal minister for the circular economy of China. And I thought, wow, if China is closing its borders to waste and, big and, capital letters and, they have a federal minister for circular economy, there is a significant economic construct here that the world is about to get in terms of tsunami wave because China realized it incredibly early. They didn't just say, I'm closing my border to waste. They appointed a federal minister for the circular economy. And we still don't have a federal minister for the circular economy for Australia. We've only just got a state minister for water. Yes, we need a minister for water because we have droughts. We've only just got a minister for the digital economy. Why do we not have ministers for the circular economy? We have a minister for trade, but it makes sense that we need to have this. And if China did it four years ago... We are just waking up now to what it means to have a circular economy. They're already plumbing economic value through the entirety of their country and their trade agreements around circular. So let's wake up tomorrow morning and start lobbying ministers oh, yeah. for I circular mean, we economy. Don't have, do we have a minister for water? No, it's kind of ministry for the I, environment. I, yeah, minister for the environment is also the minister for the economy, Minister David Parker. So that's fairly unique here. Mm. We have talked about so many things and there are so many more questions that we'd love to have you for, Leanne. Um, but I know our listeners, you know, they're time poor, Leanne. You well, know? they're bored. Yeah. <laughs> they're certainly, no, we certainly not haven't bored. Bo- I'm sure we haven't bored them. But I do I do think, if I may may take this yes, one, you know, I, I do sort of think in the background, you know, the amount of inspiration that people have heard and, you know, they might be an entrepreneur listening. Perhaps they're starting out right now. You know, they haven't had that conversation five years ago. What would you want them to know? I'd say leaving school in the in the mid-90s for me was a crystallising moment when my dad said to me, my path is sorted for you, Leanne. Be an accountant. Grab a career pathway for the next 35 years and you'll retire well. But for me, I was that curious kid that always asked, but why, mum? 
And I was also that impatient one that was sitting there saying, are we there yet? So the curious curiosity of mind in trying to work out how things work and the impatience of getting there really is the fuel for change. And so I would say the advice is there's no greater time than now to embark on that journey and to live a life that's a learning journey, to enable the learnings, whether they be good, bad or indifferent, to come out of the experiences when I left school in the mid-90s, in the late 80s, in fact, I'm lying now because I'm trying to downgrade my age, but um, there was no such thing as female entrepreneurship. There wasn't anything uh, around innovation programs. It was traditionally walking out of school into university and learning a career pathway. But now there's so much information. Technology is open sourced. You could learn how to cut code over the course of a number of weekends. Open source communities are collaborative in that people want to join in to be able to solve a problem. So I'd say seek out something that you're passionate about, a burning problem, a desire, a challenge. Maybe there was a Leonardo DiCaprio blood diamond (laughs) movie moment for you. And create an environment upon which you can foster an expertise and seek out those with the same mindset and different skill set and just go live a little because on the other side uh, of the door, once that dimmer switch is turned on, you'll be surprised when you look back at yourself just how incredible the journey is and how much you've grown as a person. Yeah, these are real words of wisdom and I think we could keep on talking for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to turn the dimmer switch on. Yeah, we've got to turn the dimmer yeah, turn switch it on. on bright. Yeah. Um, we can't thank you enough for joining us and, and seriously having someone of your caliber and experience come and, and share your thoughts and ideas is awesome and we know our listeners are going to absolutely love it. It's been such a pleasure. So thank you for coming on The Redesign of Everything. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Leanne. Let Amazing. the fun begin. <laughs> Only if it's New Zealand gin, Leanne. Of course. Yeah. I had two of those. They were cracking. <laughs> this podcast is proudly brought to you by Circularity, a team of passionate circular strategists working with a new breed of businesses. They don't see today's challenges as someone else's problem or the solutions as a utopian vision. Simply put, that is why we're here, to help build capability, unlock new value and co-design an extraordinary future together. If you are wanting to level up your impact and are looking for a partner to support that journey, consider our advisory services. Get in touch via our website, circularity.co.nz. 